I'm an Orthodox Jew. I live in the closet. I've got two kids and I'm married and I'm gay and I read your book and it really helped me realise that when I'm ready to come out, there is a community out there for me. So when you get these kind of messages, it feels like it was worth all the hard work. Welcome to Priorities, the podcast about the things in life that really matter. I'm your host, journalist and coach, Lily Silverton. And each week, I'll be asking a new interviewee to open up about the things that are important and unimportant to them. What takes first place in their life, what they couldn't care less about, and what they'd like to work on a little bit more. Will you agree with their priorities? Will they make you reevaluate your own? Let's find out. My guest today is author, journalist, and TEDx speaker, Amelia Abraham. Amelia is the features editor at British style magazine, Dazed, and has written for pretty much every UK publication you could think of, including Vice, The Guardian, New Statesman, ES Magazine, ID, and Vogue. In 2019, Amelia released what was one of my books of the year, Queer Intentions, a personal journey through LGBTQ culture. In the moving, thought-provoking, but also funny book, she explores queer culture across the world, interviewing a wide range of individuals about their experiences while also weaving in her own. Amelia's knowledge, understanding, sensitivity, and brilliant way with words has led her to become one of the foremost voices in LGBT culture and politics in the UK. Welcome, Amelia. I am so thrilled and excited to have you on. I read your book, Career Intentions, last year and absolutely loved it. It was so open and thoughtful and thought-provoking and taught me a lot as well. How are you feeling? Yeah, I'm good, thank you. Um, the book feels like quite a long time ago now, so it's nice to talk to people about it because it's, it's almost a year that it's been out. What's the response been like? It's been really good, yeah. Um, I, haven't, I haven't sort of heard a bad word about it, which is really nice. Um, and I still kind of get messages about once a week, maybe, like a, quite a thoughtful message from someone who says something that just makes me cry. Like, oh, you know, I, I had one last week that was like, um, I'm an orthodox Jew I live in the closet I've got two kids and I'm married and I'm gay and I read your book and it it really helped me realize that when I'm ready to come out there there is a community out there for me so when you get these kind of messages um yeah it it feels like it was worth all the hard work so the response has been really good um and I occasionally do hear really amazing things like that that's a beautiful message I wonder how they read it I know I thought that um sometimes that's probably the most sort of extreme one I've had but you know sometimes it's just like oh I I think there are a few at Christmas um people saying you know I'm with my family and they're not very accepting of me so it was quite nice to be able to sort of sneak off and read this book and stuff like that that's more of a usual one the the, the one from the orthodox Jewish woman was a bit a bit more kind of emotional it's incredible so when did you start writing the book? How did the idea come about? Um, I started writing it in, let me see, 2017. And it took about a year. So I, th- I think I finished in maybe a year and a half in 2018. And I suppose it was my response to what was going on around me as a queer person um, and also as a journalist who had been writing about LGBTQ plus issues for quite a while. So the book kind of brings together different thoughts I was having personally and also different articles I'd written for the the places I was writing for, like Refinery29 or Vice or The Guardian. And yeah, I I, I guess it was my way of connecting the dots between what I perceived to be the mainstreaming of queer culture, quite a dramatic shift, um, both culturally and politically, in terms of the sudden increase in acceptance that we were seeing through things like the legalization of same-sex marriage or huge brands and banks suddenly clamoring to sponsor pride um things like trans people being on the cover of magazines and walking down catwalks 
or drag becoming hugely, hugely, hugely popular. It's just all these different things I've noticed happening over the last few years all seem to be connected. And I didn't really feel like anyone had... I, f- I felt like people, and including myself, had written about this stuff, but they hadn't kind of written about it in a way that connects all the dots. So I suppose that's what made me think that it would be an interesting topic for the book. It definitely made one. It was brilliant. How did it feel for you to be so open about your own life? Because it's, um, it's a lot of your, you call it a personal journey through LGBTQ plus culture. And it really is very personal. There's a lot of um, stories that you share about yourself, both past and present, it seems, as you're writing. How did it feel to be so open about your own life and relationships? Um, I think good. Yeah. So I, as I just said, I had the, the book, the, the topic, this kind of mainstreaming and this kind of survey of the moment we're in culturally in my mind. But what actually inspired me to crack on with doing it was this relationship I had um, with a girl that lived in Iceland and we broke up. And I guess after our breakup, I was thinking, you know, maybe that was the first adult relationship where I could see myself actually getting married and having kids. But as a queer person who kind of grew up in a world where marriage wasn't possible for two women, I I had all these questions about why I wanted to get married. You know, is it too little too late? Or is that a quote unquote straight thing to do? Or is it right to get married when not everybody around the world who's LGBT is afforded the opportunity? So a lot of the questions I had around marriage was super personal. and so that's where I started the book because the breakup was fresh in my mind and that seemed like a good launching off point. And then I, I suppose also I knew that if I was going to travel around the world and meet all these queer people and ask them to tell me about their personal lives and about the things they've been through, some of them quite you know upsetting and difficult, it made sense to sort of share a bit of my personal history. Just felt more fair that way. Um, I guess. And then the other reason I want it to be personal, well, I I think people relate to that more, you know, Um, if you put yourself in the story and you share your kind of thoughts and emotions and opinions as you're going on this journey, but also just because I personally feel there aren't that many stories out there about queer women still. And so I wanted to contribute one to the world, I guess. Mm, I think it's really powerful the way you did it. Okay, Amelia, tell me, where is your well-being right now, this minute, on a scale of one to ten? Oh, um, I don't know how to rank that. I would maybe say seven today. How come? Um, well, partly because I haven't done any work yet and I just went on a run and then exercised in the garden and it's very sunny. Um, and it's, it's lunchtime now. Yeah, no, it's, it, I should say, yeah, it's lunchtime and I've sent about three emails. So I'm in quite a good mood because <laughs> I've just been <laughs> having a nice time, really. Um, but this is not reflective of the usual day for me. It's a kind of midweek lull. Um, and I'm trying to be quite forgiving about not working hard as I, as I usually might while we're all in lockdown. Yeah, absolutely. So we're, we're chatting to each other in week eight of lockdown. Is that right? Week seven or eight of lockdown? Seven or eight. Don't know what day it is. Don't know what time it is. No month or year. I mean, lead us on to your first priority, actually, to talk about having not done so much work today. But you told me that your first priority is your work, so your professional life. Talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, I'm very, very, very lucky in that a lot of what I do for my job, not all of it, is just what I'm really interested in. And I think there are good things about that. I mean, it's a very privileged position to be in um, where your job is kind of your hobby. But then that can also have complications, which we can maybe come on to in that if, if, you're, if you're work, you, it, you just don't really stop working because you mm. quite like the work that you do or it's harder to have boundaries. So... Yeah, I guess my first priority is my work. I really love it. And I think that because I also write about queer culture so much, it's not the only thing I write about. I write about arts and cultural feminist issues or 
sometimes sex and relationships or health or um, film or other things sometimes or music sometimes, but mostly um, LGBT stuff. And I guess, yeah, I just, I guess it kind of, for me, is a topic that I'm super passionate about and super interested in. Um, and sometimes you can, as I kind of mentioned with those messages I've had about the book, you know, you, sometimes you feel like, oh, I'm, this actually has quite a positive effect. So it can almost be quite addictive. Um, and I would say that's probably why I put work as my first priority. Yeah, and I guess a lot of your work is online. So you also get that instant feedback with a lot of pieces that you write. And as you said, the sort of instant messages that you can get from people like the Orthodox Jewish lady who contacted you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so. I guess that's why writing a book was different because it's a bit more of a sort of slow process and a bit more of a slow response than just putting an article out there and people read it for about a day, maybe two days, and then it's kind of gone forever. But <laughs> <laughs> sadly, kind of how it works. It's online forever, but also nobody will probably look at it again. I don't think that's true. I think lots of people read old pieces that come up with the good ones that come up over and over again yeah maybe if you've done a good job they do <laughs> um yeah um yeah I just I just I'm, I'm really interested in what I do so I, sp- I spend a lot of time reading around the topic as well if, even if I'm not literally writing something mm. have you always wanted to be a journalist uh yeah I think so I think when I was a teenager I would always read the columnists in the Sunday supplements or the big features writers in the, in the Sunday papers that my parents would buy and think that's what I want to do. Mm. Uh, it just took a while to get to it. Not too long. Uh, but I worked in PR for about one year first. How was that? Uh, yeah, it was, it was actually the best thing that could have happened in terms of working as a journalist because it was, I was actually working in PR for Vice. So I was in the right place to observe how editorial works there and uh also to meet a lot of journalists um and take journalists out for lunch journalists that work at other places like the guardian for example um and then when i eventually made the switch to editorial within vice it meant that i knew a lot of commissioning editors that i could then pitch later on mm. so it was actually really beneficial yeah but I know a lot of people that go the other way. They go from P- uh, journalism to PR later on, I think. Yeah, because they know exactly what they're looking for, right? <laughs> yeah. How, um, how has your work changed during this period of uncertainty, during lockdown? Um, well, I don't have a place to go to anymore. So I work part-time at a magazine called Dazed, usually. And I would go there four days a week which I think gives you a bit of structure and a bit more social time and, yeah, I suppose a bit a bit more focus in terms of the hours that you work. Um, whereas now I do things like potter about on exercise all morning and then start working at lunchtime and panic work till like 8pm to atone for my lazy morning. So I think it's a bit less structured. Um, and also I've been furloughed, so... I'm not doing my day job, but I am focusing on other projects and and starting a few new projects and also writing for the fun of it, which is something that I've rarely had a chance to do in my entire life because, you know, there are always bills to pay and deadlines to meet, but things have slowed down a little bit. So I'm writing a slightly more creative way and attempting fiction for the first time ever. and just, yeah, kind of slowing, slowing down the pace a little bit. Mm. Can we ask what your fiction is on? Uh, <laughs> I, I'm too embarrassed. I, I don't think I'm there yet. I think it must take, I'm always very impressed with people who can write fiction because it feels like putting out, putting so much more of yourself out there to me. It feels much more vulnerable, um, which is why I've perhaps avoided it. I'm a bit more insecure about it. Whereas I think I reason with journalism, it's not that exposing because I say, oh, I'm just writing down what happened. Um, or if I was reporting, or I'm just writing down what someone else said, even if it is quite personal, 
Um, or even if it is, you know, a book that, 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 that sort of puts forward a point and makes an argument, I think I kind of reason it that way. But with fiction, I'm scared. <laughs> yeah, I completely understand that. In terms of um, your work, aside from the book, what's maybe your favourite piece of work you've done, your favourite contribution, something that really changed the way you saw the world or changed the way you saw yourself in your work? Or maybe it just moved you? Hmm, good question. Um, I think that it's the work that kind of inspired the book, the type of work that kind of inspired the book, which was when I worked at Vice, I wrote quite a lot about um, activist movements or kind of social justice. And they were amazing and they gave me a lot of room to explore quite difficult topics as long reads. So I wrote one about... um, big pharma price hiking um, and how um, pharmaceutical companies basically were kind of withholding access to PrEP for men with HIV or access to um, rare breast cancer drugs um, through price hiking and going to these kind of activist groups and also um, going to their, their protests was really interesting to me. And then I think also I wrote another one that was a long read about the Me Too movement, but it was specifically about um, the ethics of naming your um, the perpetrator of sexual assault online. And it was a really, really long article. It was about 4,000 words long, um, looking at alternative forms of justice um, and the ethics of that. So those kind of stories where that they're, they're kind of so, social justice stories um, with maybe unanswerable or difficult questions at the heart of them. I think that's kind of what inspired the book, maybe, mm-hmm. and I'm, maybe what I find most rewarding. Mm. And Vice is really well known for that. So it's a brilliant space within to work. Yeah, I think so. And I had some really encouraging editors there. Um, I wrote another one for Dazed, where I work now, which was a similar type of story and also ridiculously long, about 4,000 words long, um, which was about transgender prisoners um, and the kind of inverted commas debate about where to put certain prisoners and what and how you can kind of identify, how you can self-determine your gender in prison and how easily you can move to a prison of the other gender as well as I went to prisons and met trans prisoners and asked them, you know, what's it like, to, for instance, to live as a woman in a men's prison for 30 years? And that was fascinating. Um, so, yeah, stories like that, I think, is my favourite work to do Mm. and just incredible to read as well I'll put a link to a few of those in the show notes that brings us on really well to another one of your priorities which is activism well I try (laughs) (laughs) have you always been engaged in activism have you always been quite political no I think that I wasn't that political particularly engaged even through university it was maybe in my kind of over the last few years, maybe I'm 28 now, so maybe about 24, 25. Um, uh, before that, I guess I was just too busy being self-involved and going out all the time, um, but also maybe trying to find a job and stuff like that. Um, I only think once you're a bit more kind of stable in yourself and what you're doing, can you, you know, really start to think, how can I do more to help other people? Um both from a kind of financial perspective and a time perspective and an emotional perspective as well. Mm. Mm. Um, So no, I haven't always been. And, you know, I'm still probably don't do as much as I could. Um, But I think it's interesting because the question I've had for a while is, you know, am I doing enough? Um, when, When you write about um, I guess, yeah, when you write about issues that are fe- affecting people from a, a minority, in a way, raising awareness of these types of issues is activism, but it's also not because I get paid to do it. Um, so while it might be really helpful to kind of go to 
Stockport and meet LGBT teenagers and talk to them about the hate crimes they're experiencing and publish an article about that in Cosmopolitan magazine where like not many people who read the magazine might know that that's going on or quite what the extent of hate crime in Britain is I'm ultimately just doing my job so it's helpful but I don't know if it counts as activism so I've been trying to kind of think you know what more can I do over the last maybe year I think it does count as it I think the two are just integrated for you yeah which is luck maybe it does which is really lucky um which is which make yeah which makes me very privileged I guess um and I suppose there are things that you do that you don't get paid for um not to call out the TED Talk franchise but but, but, uh you don't get paid to do a TED Talk and it's quite a lot of work uh actually hours and hours and hours of work because you have to learn not only have to write it and it's harder to write a speech when you're used to writing things that you know aren't going to be read aloud and then learn it off by heart, which takes forever um, and fills me with the performance anxiety. But <laughs> that, that felt like a good kind of activism adjacent thing to do. So basically mine was about why feminists should um, support transgender rights. And I think in the current climate of media transphobia, that that felt like a good or helpful message to put out into the world, I hope. Yeah, absolutely. And also kind of hopefully was a kind of a quick shortcut for some people who weren't sure about what the arguments were or what to think or what to say or do when they hear transphobia. So hopefully it kind of had a practical element to it as well. Yeah, and I think for a lot of people, the TED X or TED, TED formula is just so easy to absorb information whereby maybe, I mean, I would... I would and I do happily sit down and read your 4,000 word pieces. Um, however, for some people, that's not what they have time for or not how they work or it's just a bit too much for them. So being able to watch it in video format is so easy and accessible. I think so. Yeah, I agree. So what do you think of the online space for activism? activism? What do you think of clicktivism and everything else around that obviously right now with lockdown everything is online so your space in which you operate has changed everyone's spaces operate what do you think of that right now um I think it's a totally valid and useful form of activism if done correctly um it's at the moment yeah it's I mean it's amazing to see the kind of efforts that people are coming up with and really creative stuff as well to fundraise you know people doing drag shows from their home in order to fundraise for the drag performers who were on kind of precarious income at their local gay bar do you know what I mean Mm -hmm. stuff like that I think I'm seeing really fun creative resourceful responses to this situation um and I'm seeing a lot of people yeah, give up their their privilege or the, or the bit of expendable income they have to donate it, and I'm trying to do the same. Um, I think it's been really comforting to see that since coronavirus happened. Um, and I think things like, you know, petitions work, online petitions work sometimes, sometimes they don't, but they can at least be a really useful way to draw attention to an issue. And I think... Uh, you know, letters is something I see increasingly circulating when it comes to um, LGBT activism. So I, th- I think that a technique that we're kind of using a lot at the moment is if someone in the public eye, whether that be an MP or a journalist, says or does something transphobic, we will... Uh, someone will write a letter and then we'll all help to circulate it and we'll sign it and we'll all look over it and make sure we feel like it, it's an appropriate response. And then we'll, we'll get that. We'll not only send that to them, we'll get it published in the press. <laughs> and I think that that's been quite uh, effective in holding people accountable. I mean, there was a Guardian columnist who wrote um, an article that was, you know, we all perceived to be quite transphobic. And so we wrote an open letter and we had, um, cis feminist people of note 
sign that letter and that that got published and then there was a sort of semi-apology a week later so I think that technique's really working for us at the moment and that's that can all be done over the internet Mm, much easier to call people out quickly yeah and just get yeah get the ball rolling really quickly you know you just create a google doc and then you share it with 10 people you trust and then they share it with 10 people they trust to sign it and you can get the whole thing together within a day it's really I think it's amazing yeah, it is absolutely staggering. I work quite a lot with Extinction Rebellion and um, it's similar with them where we sort of write letters and then we'll have a look over it and then send it out. And that collaboration element and the quickness, as you say, of it can be really motivating, I think. Yeah, I mean, I think perhaps within kind of LGBTQ plus activism, what we are lacking is, and it's obviously impossible at the moment because we can't go outside, but I think in general... I think that we're not quite actually as good at sort of having physical protests or um, getting out there and getting our message heard collectively in a physical way, in the way that maybe, yeah, climate change um, activists do. Uh, So that's, I think that's something to think about going forward because obviously we have pride, but that feels quite Mm -hmm. apolitical to me these days. Um, (laughs) Although I will say, actually, was it last year, a group of people organised a kind of anti-corporate um, pride event mm-hmm. close by where main pride happens. And I went to that and it was amazing. There were about 2,000 people and we all gathered in a park and there were loads of political speeches about LGBT homelessness um, or about trans rights, for instance. Um, and then we kind of marched behind the main parade and everyone was chanting, we're here, we're queer, we are not going shopping, which <laughs> was a response to the kind of, yeah, the, the, the pink washing that happens around Pride and just the really overwhelming presence of brand logos, which sort of makes me feel strange inside. Yeah, absolutely. And that's something you talk about quite a lot in the book with relation to Pride, sort of across Europe in Amsterdam and Berlin and yeah, I tried to get to the bottom of it. I think sponsorship's necessary to make Pride happen, but I don't think it needs to be this the, the sort of big branding opportunity that it is. Yeah. <laughs> Nutrition is a priority for me, and I know that the more plants I eat, the better I feel. However, with a busy life, I, like you I'm sure, don't always manage to get my daily quota of greens. So I'm very happy that this season of priorities is sponsored by Foga, a new brand that makes plant shakes, pre-portioned blends of freeze-dried fruit and veg that you simply shake up with water or milk to create a restaurant standard smoothie at home. I'm not really into protein shakes or powders. However, these are genuinely amazing. They're so easy and delicious. Right now, I'm digging the ginger and greens combination and my daughter is a big fan of berries and cinnamon. They contain zero extra sugars or chemicals, through freeze-drying have all the nutrients locked in and their whole plant meaning they have all the fibre of fresh fruit and veg. It's really the lazy person's dream. If you're looking to easily and affordably prioritise your nourishment, then I'd love to find out if you enjoy FOGA as much as I do. They're offering £5 off your first box with the code PRIORITIES. Check them out on www.foga.co. That's F-O-G-A. Thank you to FOGA. I love sleep. Seriously, it's one of my biggest priorities and I'm a different and much improved person when I get my full eight hours. So I'm incredibly excited that this season of priorities is sponsored by Sleep Siren, an independent lifestyle brand fueled by a passion for health, wellness, and great sleep. Sleep Siren brings together science, education, and luxurious products to offer meaningful support to busy people who could sleep a little or a lot better. As the mother of a toddler and having suffered from insomnia on and off my entire life, I know firsthand how helpful Sleep Siren can be at identifying and covering your sleep needs. Whether you're looking to read an expert article on the latest sleep science, treat yourself to some insanely soft silk pyjamas, or simply find a luxurious eye mask, Sleep Siren have everything you need to sleep well tonight. If you would like to improve your sleep, I'd love for you to have the same experience as me with Sleep Siren. So they're offering 20% off with the code PRIORITY20. Check them out 
on www.sleepsiren.com. Thank you to Sleep Siren. All right, I'm going to move on to your third priority, which, as we've already discussed slightly off recording, we're not sure what to call it. So it was talking about the things that you do for yourself that are really important for your sense of well-being. So obviously self-care does pop up, but neither of us are particularly fond of that. And then we looked at me time, which again, not really huge fans of. You thought of anything else? Um, no, I don't think I've got a better suggestion. <laughs> I think the reason I don't like self-care is, yeah, because it kind of feels like a, a term that's been appropriated from Audrey Lord and now kind of is used by brands that describe, you know, doing a £100 face mask or something. So it just feels a bit strange to me sometimes. But then it is actually also useful because um, it does just sum it up, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, and me time makes me think of like, reading a romantic novel and eating chocolate in the bath, which there's actually nothing wrong with. <laughs> I'm not sure that I, that term kind of describes what I'm talking about either. And I guess, I guess what I'm really talking about is just mundane tasks, like um, that, but that you also get enjoyment from, like exercising, having, yeah, having a bath, cooking a meal that takes like an hour to prepare. Um, and I think it's quite interesting that, we wouldn't even really, I think that's 50 years ago or 30, 20 years ago, maybe we wouldn't, we wouldn't even be talking about those things in the realm of me time or self-care or whatever the term is. I think that it's interesting that we do, or, you know, acts of well-being. Um, I think it's really interesting that we consider these quite sort of banal, nice things. Uh, yeah, what, like well-being practices. Mm. And as you say, with the £100 face masks, there's also so much co-opting by brands and by money as well. So well-being or self-care being this sort of moneyed idea. There was a really good piece in The Cut about that, I don't know if you saw it during lockdown. No, I'll go and read it. I absolutely love The Cut. Okay. Uh, I love reading that stuff. But they also do hilarious profiles of a lot of people that run the kind of most expensive wackiest wellness kind yeah. of <laughs> new classes or whatever it is and I actually quite enjoy reading those because I find the tone in the cut it's like they're not kind of taking the mick but they're not endorsing it either there's this clever balance in the way they present it yeah I agree I'll, I'll, I'll link to that piece in the show notes as well um so exercising reading cooking for you those are the things that are important I think so um I I'm not quite I'm not really a yoga person um going to exercise classes with other people gives me like social anxiety so I've actually been quite enjoying for the first time getting into doing classes over lockdown at home because I'm the only person there and it's all digital and I realize that's what I, I like that um but yeah I think the reason that it's that we talk about these these quite ordinary things now as kind of self-care practices is is this, is linked to how much you know we, we work um and I think it links to what I mentioned earlier which is not maybe having a clear boundary between hobby activism and work for me so there's not fixed hours where I go into an office and then I leave that office behind and I'm not really super interested in my job, so I try not to think about it after work or on the weekend. Um, I, I, mo I work at some point most weekends, which is maybe bad. Um, and I think that's for, that's for the love of it, but also sometimes for economic reasons. And I think also just trying to do too much and being bad at saying no to things. But I think that that kind of affects your economy of time and then really simple things that maybe shouldn't even be considered as a kind of self-care becomes self-care. I think that's why it happens. Mm, yeah, the mundane. I think we're just always available and always on. 
And so doing something like exercising or reading or cooking, you have to be a bit focused. It's obviously this idea of like something where you can be mindful and draw your attention away from everything else. And of course, you can read a book and look at your phone at the same time, but you can't do that for very long. You can't get very far in the book. And same with cooking or exercising. You've got to bring your full attention to it. So it's become this way in which we in which we have this act of self-care that we need because we're not doing it the rest of the time. Completely. Uh, and it's, it's embarrassing, but also I don't blame myself, but the way that the kind of, it's, yeah, it's exactly as you say, it's the attention economy and it's uh, the kind of gamification of technology so that you kind of can't put it down and mm. you have your, your checking cycles. And especially at the moment, you know, when we're not able to have face-to-face time with people, we become really dependent on social media um and other forms of communication on our phones and on our laptops and it becomes even harder to stop and I think our screen time has gone up a lot and so I mean yeah like I said it's a bit embarrassing to admit but the the only place I can really truly read for any sustained amount of time without getting distracted on my mind wandering is in the bath because I don't have my phone and there's nowhere to go or nothing (laughs) my my Amelia, I'm exactly the same. It's the only time that I read uh, novels these days. Yeah, my flatmate would just sit in the garden or the living room and read a book, and I'm like, how do you do that? (laughs) It's terrible. (laughs) What are you reading at the moment? Um, Well, this might be my other problem. I always read three things at once. (laughs) Um, I'm reading uh, Chelsea Girls by Eileen Miles, which I'm rereading, which she's a kind of American lesbian poet and this is a kind of novel about her kind of growing up period so it's sort of set where she's from and then uh in sort of 70s New York um and about like drug taking and women and whatnot um what I mentioned about how I feel like there aren't many lesbian stories in the world this is one of the kind of famous lesbian novels so that's Chelsea Girls then I'm reading Pisces by Melissa Broder um which is a novel I think from last year um, about uh, a woman's dating life and kind of all the kind of hapless and depressing sex she has. Um, and then I'm reading a book called Immodest Acts, which is a really niche history book about a rumoured lesbian nun from the 16th century. <laughs> <laughs> quite, a, quite a strange mixture of things, I guess. But also quite on brand for me. (laughs) (laughs) This mixture of your priorities in a book format. Yeah, I just read Three Women by Lisa Tadeo as well, which I hadn't read and I loved it. Oh, it's staggering. It's such a good book. Really stayed in my head for the last two weeks since I finished. Yeah, that and the Bernadito Evaristo book, Girl, Woman, Other. Yeah, I might read that next, actually. That is quite, that's next on the list. And Rachel Kushner, The Mars Room, is one of the best things I've read recently. Absolutely love that. Would really recommend. Brilliant. I'll include all these in the show notes. Okay, so what's not a priority for you? Uh, Yeah, quite a lot of things. I don't know. Uh, um, I don't really know where to start with that one. I guess... I think I mentioned that I'm just trying not to worry too much about the future at the moment um, because I think that's really overwhelming given what's going on Um, and we don't know what's going to be possible when. Mm. Um, So I'm just trying not to, yeah, I'm not trying to worry too much about the future or the past. I don't know if it's true, but someone told me you're happiest when you think most in the present. Mm-hmm. That might that might be fake news. Um, no, <laughs> it feels true. It's, a, it's absolutely true. It's absolutely true. All of our concerns, all of our worries and stresses are generally, if you really think about it for a minute, either about what's happened in the past and we're stuck on it, stuck on maybe something we said or did and we weren't happy with, or concerned about the future, anxiety about something that might happen, or fearful of something, or worried. If you actually think about the present at this very second. There's nothing that we can worry about or think about for most people, providing your basic needs are met. Yeah, I think I think that makes sense. And I think something I do a lot is worry about 
what the outcome of every decision I make will be in a way that's quite stifling and you, you end up not really making a decision. Um, or just saying yes in case you miss out. And there's a lot of positives to being a yes person, but there's also a lot of negatives to it. Um, so just trying to take each day as it comes at the moment and, yeah, not worry about the future or get too nostalgic about the past because I think that would make me feel a bit sad um, mm. while, while our kind of movements and social time uh, and the other and possibilities are so limited. Yeah, and as you say, it's also something that you actively need to do to make it not a priority, to sort of stop worrying because the brain so naturally goes there. Yeah, it does. You know, it's natural to think, how long is this going to go on for? What's the world going to be like after? When am I going to be able to do X, Y, Z? You know, when will I be able to see my family? Um, when will I be able to date again? <laughs> All these questions are really overwhelming and because they're kind of unknown entities. Um, although the future is always to some extent an unknown entity, but I think that that's heightened at the minute. So I'm just trying to actively avoid those type of thoughts by really just focusing on what am I going to do today and not really thinking past today. Mm. Well, I, I would say this as a meditation teacher, but meditation helps <laughs> with that because it's all about being in the present and not allowing yourself to think too much about the future or the past. But it sounds like you got it down. Um, you, talked, uh, you talked about being a yes person. So that brings me on to an area of your life that you'd like to prioritise more. And you said that you'd like to not spread, your, spread yourself so thinly or try to do so many things. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I think uh, I quite often sort of joke that it's the Gemini trait or tendency um, to to be quite indecisive or perhaps a little bit fickle um, or kind of seek out this constant stimulation um, or always trying to start new things uh, without perhaps finishing the last one or taking on extra things um, which then don't allow me to give my full attention to what I'm supposed to be doing. So... Yeah, maybe just saying yes to things too much, which, as I mentioned, is is good because it opens up new life experiences and opportunities. Um, but I think it can, yeah, it can just also mean you spread yourself too thin. And that I mean that within friendships and relationships and working life. Mm, which, as you say, is so blurred as well with always being available and on with our phones. Why do you think you do it? Why do you think that you say yes to everything? Um, partly fear of missing out I guess um like I said it, I get quite stifled by having to make decisions um in case you know what will I miss yeah what will I miss out on or what what might happen if I say no um so I say yes just to see and then suddenly I've said yes to too many things <laughs> um and I think also yeah a bit of when when a lot of your income is kind of freelance you, you it gives you this mindset of well I better say yes to that because I don't know when I might get asked again or when the next job is coming um even though it usually will come um so I think there's a bit of that too yeah I, I can completely relate to that um and I think then the, th the third reason is sort of on a slightly more emotional level um I don't think I really like putting all of my eggs in one basket in case they break <laughs> um so yeah I think that and that that then kind of starts to apply across the board um and sometimes that can be a smart decision because you know you might put all your time and energy into you know, something, I'm trying to develop a TV show, for example, and if that was the only thing I was doing, the fact that it was, it was taking a year and that it could go wrong at any time, you know, it probably wouldn't end well. But but because I'm trying to work at Dazed, work in TV, try writing fiction, work on a second book, do the events for the first book and freelance, 
if one thing goes wrong, there's still kind of four things left. But that also just leaves you feeling completely frazzled and like your head's in too many places. And I think a lot of people in the creative industries have a kind of similar situation. Um, so yeah, just trying not to put all my eggs in one basket. Um, but that can be a catch-22 because if you do put all your eggs in one basket, then you know things might pay off better or the end result might be um, a little bit more special because you'll have given it your all. So I think I'm still working that one out. Hmm. I always think maybe because I work very much in that way as well with so many projects on the go what I kind of think about it is like you know on a volume dial so you like turn one dial down at that point in life so just not doing quite as much on that but it's still there and turn other one up that you really need to put your energy into and work into and that way you know that you've got to say no a little bit more often for that area or for that maybe if it's freelance work if you're focusing on the tv or if it's you know commitments for the book um in terms of publicity knowing that maybe you need to say no to some things in order to have a little bit more energy to focus on one area and then you can dial other things up at various points yeah that's a lot more of a kind of tactical and controlled way of looking at it than I guess that classic thing that I think always does feel true which is that you know we that kind of cliche of oh, well, one, once one area of your life is going right, another one will go wrong, which I, I think does tend to happen. Uh, but maybe it just feels like that. <laughs> I think it can feel like that. Again, as you said, if you feel like you're spreading it too thinly. So what steps do you think that you can make now, easy steps, in order to manage your time a little bit, let, a little bit better and feel less thinly spread over your life I think having a limit in the number of kind of concurrent work projects that are allowed to happen is helpful um maybe five feels like a reasonable number and then you know not not letting myself go beyond that um and I think just remembering that the things that we talked about that constitute self-care uh, are really important to make time for because uh, your your kind of work improves if you if you're kind to yourself um, and you, you don't force yourself to work literally every minute of every day and every weekend um, and that having time off will ultimately make your work better I guess that's something I try to try I'm trying to remember yeah completely I think it's so much. I mean, I'm a bit of a workaholic myself, so I'm with you on that one. But it's so much in the downtime that some of the best creative ideas can come because you've actually got the space for them. A hundred percent. I mean, two things on that. One is that I think it's, uh, it is a little bit harder when we're in lockdown because as, 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 because you're, or just if you work from home generally, because you have to be really disciplined about taking an hour for lunch or stopping at 6 p.m which is the structure I mentioned that an office gives you and you don't have that so I think just remembering to do that is really yeah it's really really helpful and you're completely right the best ideas do come when you're sort of just I mean I feel like my best ideas always come when I'm on holiday weirdly uh because it's mm. fine the time to think in a more kind of creative way yeah totally I have the same experience so we need to just do a little bit less sometimes, actually. Force. When we're allowed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, speaking of more, tell us about the projects you're working on right now. You talked about the TV show. Is it a show? Is it a series? It's, it, well, ideally, it is a TV show and a, and a series. It's a, it's a kind of adaptation of Queer Intentions, the book um, my last book which you were very kind about kind of trying to turn it into a fictional drama about a contemporary group of queer friends that also looks back at lgbt history but television is slow so that's just kind of bubbling away over there and i'm working on a second book for penguin which is an anthology about LGBTQ plus rights around the world and sort of a manifesto for what we need to do 
to make life better for LGBT people, what work there still is to be done. Uh, so it's, that's really exciting. And I've got, I can't really say who's in it yet, but there are a few very well-known LGBT people and also some grassroots activists that I've come across in my own work uh, who are who have really amazing stories and really sometimes quite upsetting stories or really inspiring stories. Um, and everyone's sort of talking about the thing that they changed to make life better for LGBT people. Sounds great. Well, as you know, I loved your first book, so I'll be pre-ordering that. Do you know when it's coming out yet? I do. Um, and that's when everyone gets around to actually sending me their essays. No, it's in, it's in <laughs> June 20, 21. All right. Well, we'll look out for it then. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, thanks. Thank you for talking to me. It's been, it's been, I think it's been very helpful in getting my thoughts aligned at this weird time. Good. Good to hear. I love chatting to you and hearing about all your priorities and everything that's going on. Thank you so much. No worries. Thank you. Thank you too. Take care. Bye. Bye. If you enjoyed this episode of Priorities, I'd really appreciate it if you could make it your priority today to hit subscribe and also rate and review as this helps other people find it. Need a little incentive? Every month, I offer one free 60-minute online coaching session to a listener. All you have to do is hit subscribe, rate, review the podcast, and then email a screenshot of your review to prioritiespodcast at gmail.com. You'll then be added into the ballot for a free one-to-one coaching session with me in which we will help align the priorities of your life. Thank you so much for listening and take care.